Welcome to the podcast for a better life. I'm Chris Johnson. If you're interested, both the book and film version of A Better Life are available at theatheistbook.com. On today's episode, I speak with Dan Barker, former preacher and co-president of the Freedom from Religion Foundation. Dan Barker is the co-president of the Freedom from Religion Foundation and a former evangelical preacher and musician. I asked him about growing up in Southern California in a religious family. My mom and dad were, were smart, but simple, good people. Uh, they both uh, found religion when we were little boys, and they become very conservative, church-going, uh, Bible-believing. And in fact, for a long time, they had trouble finding a church that was spiritual enough for them. Mm-hmm. So since mom came out of a kind of, you know, loose Roman Catholic background and dad was in the Christian church, they weren't really committed to any particular denomination. So they searched and we, we kind of church hopped for a while. We thought it was fun. We went to the Christian church for a while. We went to the Nazarene church for a while. Uh, we went to an Assembly of God church and during the charismatic movement in the 1960s which brought a kind of respectable Pentecostalism into mainstream churches. And then um, we, uh, we went door to door, knocking on doors, trying to invite people to come to church. And we held Saturday morning Bible studies for children in our neighborhood. My mom and dad invited uh, a group that's like Jews for Jesus. They didn't call it that, but uh, converted Jews to Christianity who met in our home for a while. Hmm. We were really... Um, drenched in religion and i liked it i was one of those kids who thought this is cool this is great i know there's other people who hate it i, I hear stories from people who said they couldn't wait to get out of it but i was a good kid i was kind of a gentle smart kid and i wanted to do the right thing and i thought boy am i lucky you know I, i'm i'm in the right religion in the right family and in the uh the right country uh, in the right time of history and Boy, isn't this great, you know? So um, it, it was, you know, we considered ourselves born-again Christians and lived it and loved it. And I sang in the choir. I played piano for the choir. For a while when I was a teenager, I was the choir librarian for this faith healer named Catherine Kuhlman. And Catherine Kuhlman came out from Pennsylvania once a month to the Shrine Auditorium in Los Angeles, and it held these faith healing meetings. People would throw away their crutches, and it was a huge auditorium filled with people who were crying, and their hands were raised, and screaming to Jesus, and praying, and tears down their face. And I was in the choir up on the stage behind Catherine Coleman, so I was looking out at that ocean of faces. People would come to get healed, and in the organ music, it was just—it was really just an amazing thing to be a part of. And I didn't really know her very well. I met her like twice, but. Uh, she was quite a phenomenon. She would walk out with her long flowing, I guess, Roman or Greek robes or whatever it was. And uh, people were mesmerized by that. And I thought it was real. I saw miracles. And uh, I used to think, boy, there must, there's probably eight or ten skeptics and atheists in the world. But, boy, uh, they must be really blind to deny something so real and so powerful. And I felt it. And I was a born-again Christian myself. And I lived it, and then I accepted, when I was 15, I accepted what I was convinced was a call to the ministry. And 
because my dad had been a lay preacher, and I actually went with him to some of his seminary classes. And it just felt so good and so right, and I had the Bible to back it up, and I had a church community and pastors and all of that. And uh, it was just, um, uh, I don't know, I was one of the guys who just lapped it all up. And, and not just for social reasons, but I just totally believed it. And I felt the Spirit of God, and I talked with Jesus, and I prayed, and I often saw answers to prayers. And so it was very affirming and uh, a very good, positive type of Christian experience. Looking back on it, I see how deluded I was, but when you're in the middle of it, it just felt wonderful. Did music have a lot to do with bringing you into the church? Because you you mentioned you started playing the piano very young, right? It was a part of our whole culture. And my dad was a trombone player, my mom was a singer, and so for a while, our family formed a little musical group that we would sometimes travel around and perform in churches and I'm sure it was pretty hokey, you know, I'm sure it was pretty, you know, home-baked music, but it was sincere, and my dad did a little bit of preaching, my brothers played different instruments, and I played the piano. We sang harmonies, you know, those good old simple gospel harmonies, mm-hmm. and uh, it was just uh, a way for us to be a part of all of that ministry. So uh, I guess music didn't bring me in, but music just really was an affirming part of the whole experience. It wrapped up the theology for you in a way that that made it very exciting for people and palatable for people to understand musically speaking. It was part of the worship experience. We were we were in church to worship and praise God, and music was one way to express that. And uh, you know, now with some perspective, I can see that music is common to all cultures, and it's a part. It's it's part of the glue or the mortar, I guess, that holds together all sorts of movements and religions and uh, non-religions, whatever. Music is a very human thing, so it's natural that it would be involved with religion in some way. And so you actually went into the ministry. You wanted to be an evangelical preacher. What was that experience like in training and becoming a minister? Well, I became a minister the day that I accepted what I was convinced was a calling from God when I was 15 years old. I didn't think you had to be ordained or have a piece of paper or some particular education. I thought if God calls you to preach, you preach. So I did. I was the guy on campus. I would walk around high school with a Bible under my arm and go up to people. I was that guy, you know. Uh, But it happened as a result of sitting in, uh, it was called Anaheim Christian Center at the time, which was a kind of a renegade Assembly of God Church that became charismatic, which then later moved to Melody Land Christian Center, which is across the street from Disneyland in this big building. So I was sitting at Anaheim Christian Center hearing a sermon about uh, the Great Commission. You should go into the whole world and preach the gospel. Mm-hmm. And it was almost like God was talking to me, saying, you're going to be one of those to go out and preach and because the time is short. And Jesus is coming soon, and we need to bring souls into the kingdom. And I was thinking, well, what's more important than this? Who cares what career I choose? Who cares if I – I didn't even think I was going to live long enough to even go to college or get married. You know what I mean? Jesus was coming any minute. And that was exciting. It was like, wow, I get to be on the front lines of this army that really – what's more important? You know, going to school and getting some degree in some career, but – or – working for God and, you know, saving souls for eternal life. What's actually more important? 
And in my mind, I was a I was the perfect candidate to be recruited. I suppose the military uses similar terminology, but I was recruited into the ministry, and uh, I preached my first sermon when I was 15 years old, with, before I went to college or any of that. And uh, it was down in Mexico. I was on some of these teams, and I really enjoyed that. And I saw people come forward to pray and accept Jesus. And and I was instrumental in leading my high school Spanish teacher to Jesus. He became a born-again Christian, mainly because of my talking with him. And then he and I started a Bible study club on campus. So I was a minister at age 15, even before I went to Bible school. You know what I mean? Hmm. Uh, and I used to think you don't have to be ordained. You don't have to, you know, you, you know, out of the mouths of children, even God can do his work. So, but I did go ahead and get ordained. I went to Azusa Pacific College. Jesus, thankfully, uh, delayed his second coming long enough for me to go to college. And uh, I uh, got a degree in religion. And even during those four years, I was almost every night out somewhere preaching. And I think I was a lot more active in ministry than any of my professors or teachers were. I thought they were just sort of interesting, but a little dry. I mean, they weren't really living. Well, I don't know. Maybe some were. But um, so I got the degree in religion. And then I was ordained to preach some years later, actually. It was 1970, uh, 1975. And I didn't think I needed to be ordained. But this church was telling me, you know, this will help your standing in the Christian community. If you do have an ordination, then you'll be able to perform weddings and things. So I said, okay. So I got ordained. Uh, and looking back on that, it was a pretty simple ceremony, you know, asking asking questions and laying on of hands and prayer and all that. So I have that ordination, which ironically I'm still using today uh, to perform secular marriages, and which I also use in, in our lawsuit where we're challenging the chaplain of the House of Representatives who's denying me a chance to open Congress with a secular invocation because I need to be ordained. Well, I showed him I am ordained. So it's kind of funny how important that ordination did become. And I was an associate pastor in uh, three different California churches where I uh, I preached and I led music and I, I worked with the young people and I did basically everything that local pastors do. But um, And I liked it, but I really felt my calling was evangelism because I thought Jesus was coming and that local church ministry, certain people are called to different types of ministry. And even in Christianity, you talk about your different parts of the body of Christ. There's different ministries and talents that God gave each of us. And I really saw myself as a soul winner evangelist. So after those three churches, I went into full-time evangelism. What was that experience like when you went full-time into evangelism? Well, that was, uh, I guess, what is it? The best of times, the worst of times. Mm -hmm. Because I really did think that tonight might be the night when the world ends and Jesus comes. And so if the Lord can delay his coming one more day, I can preach and get more people into the kingdom. Uh, and so, but on the other hand, it was not a job. It was living by faith. I was not working with an organization. It was just me and my little family. I'd gotten married right out of college and we started to have little kids in, in a little yellow Chevy Nova, hmm. accepting invitations to preach around the country. And we didn't charge. We didn't have contracts. We didn't even have an agreement. We just showed up when someone asked. And then most of the time they would take 
a love offering. You know, they'd pass the hat. And and then after the meeting, we would sit in the car and open the envelope to see if we had enough cash to get to the next meeting kind of thing. Mm-hmm. We had no health insurance. We had no income. We had our stuff in, in, in storage. And for a number of years, we lived like that by faith. And I guess today I would say that was pretty stupid. It was not a good long-range plan financially. But at the time, I thought, well, I'm being stupid for Jesus, you know, and we should be fools for Christ, and we should do what God tells us to. So now I can say that that experience really helps to underline the fact that I really was a true believer. Because a lot of Christians try to say, Dan, you weren't a true believer because, you know, if you really knew Jesus, you wouldn't have rejected him. But I say, well, look at my life. The Bible says you shall know them by their fruits, not by what you might think. And I put my life on the line. And uh, it was it was probably pretty irresponsible, too, because what if we had needed some a medical emergency? Or what if there was something with the kid? You know what I mean? It was like mm-hmm. taking quite a risk. But we, I was in my 20s, you know, and I thought you're very idealistic then. And I truly loved God and and. So I traveled around. I went into Mexico for at least a couple of years. I, uh, and during all that time, I was also involved in music recording, Christian music recording, mostly in Southern California. And so I had, I guess it was a business, but it didn't really make any money. I, I was basically seeing it as a ministry. And I worked with a lot of Christian singers and songwriters producing, especially with Manuel Bonilla, who was and probably still is the leading Christian recording artist in the Spanish-speaking world. Uh, he's a he has been a big name, and I think he's still we're still friends. So um, you're still friends. Yeah, we're still friends. Wow. We talk every maybe once or twice a year because mm-hmm. we liked each other. A lot of my other Christian friends, I, it turns out, we actually didn't like each other that much. We were just <laughs> in the same cause. But Manuel and I were really good buddies, and I think we still consider that, uh, even though he's still a strong charismatic, Bible-believing, evangelical Christian. Um, so that was exciting uh, to be able to travel and preach and, and see results and to, to, be, to be able to think when I die, I'm going to be welcomed into heaven as done my best for Jesus, my, you know, well done, my good and faithful servant. I was not doing it for me. I was doing it for God. So, um, it, you know, it's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy looking back on it. But I think we can all look back on our youth to some degree or other and say, oh, my goodness, why did I do that? Well, my, my youth lasted a bit longer than a lot of other people's. And your wife at the time was on the same page as you in terms of religiosity? Yeah. Carol, my my Christian wife, uh, we were a team. In fact, she's a pretty good singer, and she and I sang duets, and we formed some musical groups. We were on local Christian television, and we produced some music and albums, and uh she wasn't a preacher type, but she was really a singer, and she really was supportive. And she traveled to most of those meetings, actually. Um, and it was a good marriage while it, while it lasted, while we were on the same page. It was good. Mm-hmm. And she's a good person. And uh, so, you know, the split had to do mainly with religion, mainly with the differences. But, but yeah. So can you talk a little bit about that split in terms of when did you start to have doubts about your faith? So it wasn't doubts. Um, looking back on it, I know some some atheists who were raised religious say, "Oh, I started doubting this and I started doubting that." But for me, it wasn't so much doubt as it was uh, uh, an evaluation of what I believed. So I remember 
must have been around 1980, uh, I went to a church, a Baptist church, and this minister of the church said that there were some members of his congregation who did not think Adam and Eve were historical people. He mm -hmm. thought, that, he said, these members of my congregation think Adam and Eve were just, uh, you know, uh, a parable, let's say. That, they, that the early Israelites didn't intend anyone to think they were actually real person named Adam and a person named Eve. The word Adam is not really a name. It just means the dirt, the mud, which is one clue that it's more like a fable than a, a true story. Mm -hmm. I was shocked. And I was wondering how he could let them be members of his church, if that's what they think, because that's calling God a liar, right? Uh, but I remember thinking, I didn't question the Adam and Eve story, but what I questioned was, should something like this be a big enough difference to stop me from fellowshipping with other Christians who have a slightly different view or opinion or theology from me? Mm -hmm. So I didn't, I didn't abandon anything. I, what I did was I sort of loosened up a little bit and, thought, and started thinking, well, am I the know-it-all? Am I the one person? And so it's questions like that that were evaluations. They weren't so much doubts. It was much, much later that I actually started doubting, well, maybe Adam and Eve didn't exist. Because if, uh, we know from, from science that could not have been a first man and a first woman there, you know, from evolution. And if there were, they would have come out of Africa, not out of the Middle East. And I got to thinking, well, okay, my, my theology can mature is what I was thinking. I didn't think I was doubting. I think I thought I was maturing. So it's a more sophisticated, more subtle way of thinking about the Bible. It's not so black and white. Like fundamentalists, like I used to be, everything was black and white. And even the Bible says, Jesus said, you should be cold or hot, because if you're lukewarm, I'll spit you out of my mouth. And if, to, a, to a strict fundamentalist, there's no room for lukewarm or gray areas. You have to be yes or no. Even Jesus said, let your yay be yay and your nay be nay. But I remember thinking, well, that's kind of simplistic, isn't it? And there are other Christians that have a more rounded out, a broader or maybe more subtle uh, way of looking at things. And so I was thinking, well, you know, in the New Testament, Jesus made up stories. Uh, the parable of the prodigal son. He mm -hmm. Jesus didn't say that was a real person. It's just a parable. It's not a lie. It's just a story. Everybody, no one thought it was a lie or a truth. It was just a story that was used to illustrate a point or the parable of the Good Samaritan. So if Jesus or whoever wrote it, maybe, maybe someone else wrote it, but whoever wrote that story can make up these parables that are not actually historically true, but they serve an important function in teaching moral lessons. Well, then the early Israelites could have and probably did do that with the Adam and Eve story. It was a parable. It wasn't supposed to be some historical report, some people with, you know, a name and address and social security number that we can look up in history. And I started thinking, well, does that matter? And what really matters is the truth of the story, not the actual, you know, biblical literacy of the story. And that's kind of what you hear when you talk to more moderate liberal type of Christians. Uh, and so it was, it was questions like that that were not doubts, but that were like a kind of uh, – Within Christianity, a kind of spiritual growth 
from from being a hard-nosed extremist fundamentalist born again to more of a, a more mature, older, wiser kind of thinker about some of these things and, and with more subtlety. So later those questions turned into doubts. But in the beginning, it was it was really a, an attempt to strengthen my faith, not to weaken it. It was an attempt to to become stronger and have more understanding. What did your family think of this shift in your theology? Well, my wife sensed something because my sermons were becoming less and less about hell and heaven and judgment and afterlife and sin. And they were becoming more about goodness and living your life and let your light shine before men and how to live your daily life. Kind of what you hear from most pulpits on Sunday mornings, rather than all this extremism of you know, fundament, fundamentalist hell and you're a bad person and there's righteousness and there's wickedness and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So I, my sermon started shifting, which I thought was maturing. I thought it was okay. I'm not a kid anymore. I'm, I was in my 30s by then. And so she started sensing something was different and she even started changing too, obviously, because you don't stay where you are in life. Uh, my mom and dad didn't really know. They were just kind of happy their son was out as a preacher and by then, I was also writing Christian music, and I was I was actually not making a big living, but I was having some income from royalties from Christian musicals that I wrote. In fact, I'm still getting royalties today, even, from that, <laughs> years, which is kind of weird. That's but um, So it wasn't until close to the end of that period, it took four or five years of migrating across the Christian spectrum from fundamentalist to more moderate to more liberal until eventually I, you know, the line I say is I threw out all the bathwater and I found out, hey, there's no baby there. It's just, these are all just, um, you know, the prodigal son is a parable and Adam and Eve are a metaphor. Well, then maybe God, that's another character in the Bible. Maybe God himself was just one big figure of speech, metaphor, parable that early people invented to tell some important moral tale. You know, I started thinking like that and suddenly, wow. And it wasn't until I sent a letter out to everybody. I sent a letter to all my friends and relatives and Christian publishers and co-missionaries and ministers. This one-page letter I sent out saying, guess what? I, I don't think I believe anymore. Then I started getting the reactions. And uh, they were, uh, well, they were anything you can imagine. They were, on one hand, very friendly, loving reasoned responses from people, Christian friends, who are still, some of them are still friends today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can imagine the other extreme. I got some surprisingly ugly, preachy, hateful, almost vile responses from people that I thought were my friends, but it turns out I guess they weren't, if they couldn't tolerate something like this. So uh, my mom and dad were pretty shocked at first, but, and I'm going to make this story really short here, uh, after two or three years, they both became atheists too, which is pretty neat, you know, and so did one of my brothers. So uh, the initial the initial coming out was pretty shocking. I suppose uh, gays, uh, gays and lesbians have a similar thing when they come out with their family for the first time. The initial jumping in the deep end or coming out of the closet is pretty shocking, but then you get used to it. Mm-hmm. You Your family kind of says, okay, well, this is the way things are. And so... Uh, uh, I had no choice. I mean, I had to do that. I, for for the sake of integrity, 
once I stopped believing, I couldn't keep preaching. Oh, well, I did for about four months. That was really weird. I, I, I confess I was a hypocrite for, mm-hmm. <laughs> for, because I had these events on my calendar. And I knew in the summer of 83, oops, I don't believe anymore. Whoa, I just discovered it. I thought I was the only one. I guess I, what does that make me? It makes me a non-believer, an atheist, I guess so. But I still kept accepting, you know, I felt like, well, I, can I back out of these? And I, and at around December of that year, I thought, no, I can't keep doing this. This is not fair to me. It's not honest to me or to the people I'm talking to. You know, even though I was good at it, I didn't believe it anymore. I said, I can't do this. Uh, I, I don't want to be a phony. So I had to send that letter out and break it off for good and let the chips fall. So you mentioned this moment that you kind of realized uh, that there was no God. Was it a specific moment? Do you remember the moment that you had that thought for the first time? I think I do. And and maybe I'm rewriting memories. You know how our brains are. But I think I do. Uh, In that summer of 83, I was down across the border in Mexico, not too far away, just south of Mexicali uh, in a little, they call them ejidos, a little like, used to be a former farm community, little villages down there mm-hmm. with a canal, a dusty canal and, and adobe huts and things. And the church didn't even have glass in the windows. And I was preaching and I was staying overnight in this church in a, like in a cot in a Sunday school room, basically, is where I was sleeping. And I was looking out the window, uh, this windowless window at night up at the stars, thinking, wow, those stars are further away than we thought. And I was reading science by then. And and I was looking at those stars and thinking each one of those, you know, most of them are burnt out by now, but each one of those is a little, you know, engine that's, you know, ingesting material and then it burns it up for a while and it shines in the night and then it finally burns out. And I thought, well, me too. I'm ingesting material. I'm a little living organism and I'm faintly glowing in the universe here with some warmth and life but I'm going to burn out too someday. I'm just I'm just a living natural organism on a natural planet, just like those stars. And for the first time in my life, I realized I'm actually alone in this room. It's just me in this room. There's no spirits or gods or Jesus or ghosts or, you know, the Bible says there are these principalities and powers that are struggling for our soul, all this background stuff that's going on. I realized that's not going on. I'm just an evolved biological organism here i am on this planet and i can see the whole physical makeup and i i think it was at that moment that i was at the same time scared and excited mm-hmm. um i don't know how alex honnold feels when he's standing on a ledge when he's mountain climbing it must be a combination of a mixture of feelings like whoa this is a risk this is scary but it's also exciting or maybe mm-hmm. somebody who's doing skydiving or something where you're kind of out on your own here, you know, um, or maybe when a comedian walks out on stage, you know, you're, <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, you're alive. Right. And at that moment I realized I'm actually alive. I'm a living thing. My heart's beating and it's not going to beat forever. And there's nothing else. This is all there is. I was absolutely alone, which meant a lot. It meant I'm going to have to reframe everything now. So uh, I remember that moment, and it was—it wasn't until December when I basically, basically outwardly broke it off. Wow! And it required you to also lose a lot too in your life, your marriage, at that point as well. Is that when that 
ended as well? Well, it ended uh, the next year, yeah. And uh, that was hard. Divorce is always hard. Mm -hmm. Maybe it was even tougher because there was no real, you know what I mean? There was no scandalous reason for the divorce. It was just that we both realized she always viewed herself as a minister's wife. And to her credit, she bent as much as she could. And here's, you know, this is also kind of the big high point of the beginning of the feminist movement as well. And so I was hoping that our relationship would be horizontal, you know, equal peers, uh, side to side, instead of patriarchal, uh, vertical, where there's one person above the other. I was hoping that a true friendship would be just equal, side by side. And she kind of didn't want that. She wanted to be the wife. And, uh, and so she later got remarried to a Baptist minister, which shows you what, where she's at. And, and I'm glad for her. I'm glad she landed on her feet, and I'm glad she found someone that fits her lifestyle, uh, even though I think it's, it's based on some phony premises. At least they're true to themselves and they're happy. So, so that was tough. Um, and, you know, it was a loss. But it, w it was an agreed loss. Even she would say the Bible says, do not be unequally yoked together with non-believers, that it couldn't have worked for her either. So, uh, And then, of course, a lot of friends. I lost a lot of friends. Uh, and I was surprised how many friends stayed friends, which is pretty cool. I, I tell you, that's a good way to test your friendships. Hmm. You know, Imagine you, Chris, with all your friends that you've met over the last few years that mm -hmm. you really admire. Imagine you telling them all, "Well, I've become a Hari Krishna, or I've become a, uh, you know, I've become a Muni now." Uh, <laughs> if I know you, that would never happen. But picture that in your mind: how many of your friends today would stay friends with you? Mm -hmm. Some of them would because they really, really like you as a person and you like them as persons. But others would have a trouble with that because the friendship is somewhat contingent. You know, I'm your friend as long as this. Mm -hmm. I'm your friend as long as you're in the same club or group or whatever with me. So when that external condition to the friendship disappears, what's left of the friendship? Well, that's a great way to test it. And in my, in my case, it, most of them disappeared, but some of them stayed because we realized just person to person, eyeball to eyeball, we like each other. We're, you know, we're, we're, we're actual friends, human being friends. So I'm not recommending you try that. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> you can see the point I'm trying to make. That yeah. There are there's different levels of friendship, and some of them will only go so far with you, and others will go with you to the end. So uh, I, I, got to, I got to find out. And what about your children? So, yeah, so Carol and I had four kids. They're great kids. Um, and uh, two of them today I, are atheists or, or atheist agnostic. They're very free-thinking. Mm -hmm. uh, two of them are believers. Uh, one of them goes to church. Well, I think two of them go to church regular. Uh, but they're very tolerant and I guess maybe even liberal. Uh, but we have a good family, and so I think we all understand there's more important things to talk about when you have your precious time together with a family than the things that divide you because mm -hmm. there's so many memories and so many good things. And so, you know, we judge each other by our actions. And so it doesn't really matter. So those, you know, my son Danny is pretty active, outspoken atheist, and he's, he's pretty active online too. In fact, people confuse us a lot because he's a Dan Barker too. Uh, and people 
email him or contact him thinking it's me and vice versa, which mm-hmm. is kind of, uh, he has a different middle name. Uh, so, uh, over the long run, I think the kids and the parents judge each other by their commitment and love and their actions toward each other more than what you actually believe. If you can't do that and won't do that, then it's not a functional family. It's a sad situation. And I know there's, I know there's atheists and agnostics who, whose family just doesn't work anymore because because of that reason or maybe it's a, a strained relationship rather than a true open loving relationship so um one of my brothers uh there's three boys and one my one brother daryl became an atheist secular humanist but tom stayed as a, a believer and still is mm-hmm. and we're in touch a lot and we really like each other and he he read my most recent book and and liked it actually uh, but he's a conservative churchgoer, um, uh, very conservative of uh, many views. But surprisingly, he's not part of the 80% of evangelicals who supported Donald Trump. He's one of the 20% who don't like Donald Trump. There are some evangelicals, actually, who have principles. They think character matters mm-hmm. over politics. I, I think I think most evangelicals have sold out politically on, on Trump. But there are some, like my brother Tom, who really do think, and he agrees with me on some political issues, which is kind of interesting, even though we disagree theologically. It's at least it's at least fun for us to sit together and bash uh, certain politicians, even though we disagree with a lot of our other views. So you must have felt some nervousness about what you were then going to do with your life, because up to that point, your life had been religion. Your life had been religion and music. Were you scared about what the path forward was after you lost your faith? Yeah, and and adding to that, that we didn't have any base. We had no no savings, nothing. You know, it was just day to day living. And uh, technically, I mean, we were feeding the kids, but it, we were kind of poor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one day, a bunch of groceries showed up on our front porch. So it was like, uh, what am I going to do now? You know, I'm trained in the ministry. Well, music was a good bridge. Because I was still doing music production, although most of it was Christian stuff. And most of it wasn't very good, actually. Most of it was B-level projects like um, making demos for songwriters or making a touring album for a minister and his wife who were traveling, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Or junior high choirs who were going on tour and they wanted a. Yeah, but some of the stuff was actually pretty good production. So I had... I had some income from that, but I wasn't a very good businessman. I, I was still viewing it as a ministry. And so I just kind of told people, well, pay me what you can, you know, <laughs> <laughs> which which I thought God's going to provide. So, uh, you know, I, I really left all of that without any real base at all. And I'm thinking, well, what am I going to do? And uh, I, I applied to the post office. I thought, well, maybe I'll be a letter carrier. And I I actually passed the test, and they said, you were like in the top 99%. You are great, and we have a job for you in 14 months. Mm. <laughs> so big big deal. So great. you know. I was, um, so uh, my uncle uh, owned a software company, and I thought, well, maybe I could program. And I took one class, an introduction to computer programming, where we learned how to program in BASIC. It was really basic. Before mm-hmm. the class was even out, my uncle said, well, do you want to try doing some low-level stuff for my company? And I did, and I loved it. And it's a long story, but uh, 
they put the project on hold, but he kept us on payroll. So I spent six months just reading manuals. And I found that I just totally loved programming. And then that didn't last long. I, then I applied for another programming job with the railroads. And that was a blast. I was lucky that I found something I could do. I had no degree in it. I had no experience in it, but I just loved it. And I convinced the employer that I can do this. And we were programming real-time multitasking systems from the ground up for dispatchers. And uh, I thought it was like, wow, I'm going to I'm going to work like to play chess and I get a paycheck for this. It was like fun, you know. Um, <laughs> although it was serious work. And one guy was killed and another guy lost a leg when a train went the wrong way. And they tried to blame our software. But uh, anyway, so I did find a career. There was no clergy project back then where I could compare notes with others. Um, and uh, so for two or three years, I was a computer programmer analyst. Started off in assembly language. Motorola had a chip called the 68000, 68000, the very first one. Hmm. And so programming in assembly language, uh, I've since learned that people are intimidated by that because they think it's like hard to program in assembly, but it was fun. Uh, it was hard because you have to oh, you have to over document, but anyway. So combining that with some music production income, uh, I, I made a basic life for a couple of years, and then I came to Madison, Wisconsin, and the Freedom from Religion Foundation. I started working for so, um, so I found a good way to transition. I know other former clergy who are not so lucky. I know of one who's right now a respected minister with a divinity degree and a big career he's he's flipping pancakes and he's flipping hamburgers at a place he can't find a job he just needs to support his family with something so i think i was fortunate i i recently spoke with your current wife annie lawyer gaylor yeah who told me that she first met you because you wrote her a letter can you talk about that yeah so mid-1980s no internet of course I thought I was all alone. I thought I, I knew this couldn't be true, but it felt like I was the only atheist in the universe. You know, mm -hmm. and there had to be maybe ten or twelve others somewhere in the country somewhere. <clears throat> and so I I read books and I bought books. I didn't have much money, but I I was able to look in catalogs and get books. Uh, you know, I read Bertrand Russell. I read some Ingersoll. I read uh, whatever I could and and some science magazines. And in a magazine, I saw an ad for uh, – there was a company in Portland that was selling free thought books. And I saw an ad for a book called Woe to the Women, the Bible Tells Me So by Annie Laurie Gaylor. So I ordered that. And it was a nice, thin book. I mean, you know, not tiny, but a nice book that talks about uh, how the Bible has influenced modern laws, which are not favorable to women, and it explains why. And I thought, wow, this is good stuff. This is the Bible. And so I wrote her a letter. Her address was in Madison, Wisconsin, mm -hmm. and I said, "I really liked your book. I just thought you should know it really made you know made a difference in somebody's life." And by the way, I'm a former preacher, uh, and I just came out of the ministry. Just a short letter. Well, she never really read it. She glanced at it, forgot about it, and never answered it. But her mom saw the letter because she was still living in her mom's house. Uh, mm -hmm. She was just out of college. Her mom saw the letter and said, well, we need to respond. So her mom, Ann Gaylor, who's the principal founder of the Freedom from Religion Foundation, she wrote me back and said, this is a good story. Maybe you could write us an article for our newspaper with a brand new newspaper called Free Thought Today. Uh, 
1984 was volume one. And so I said, okay. So I wrote an article telling my story, a short article called Losing, called, I, I Just Lost Faith in Faith. And um, so I actually had not communicated with Annie Laurie. But then um, a few weeks later, I got a call from a producer of a TV show in Chicago called AM Chicago, who said, we heard that you were a, a preacher and now you're an atheist and we're doing a show about it. Would you like to come on the show? So I flew to Chicago from California, and the show was hosted by a young woman named Oprah Winfrey, hmm. and that was just a few months before she went national. She was getting pretty well known, and on that show, that day of that show is when I actually met Annie Laurie, and she said, I'm sorry I didn't respond to your letter. I'm sorry, uh, and I met Anne and Annie Laurie, and, and that was the first time I had actually knowingly met any other atheists. And I say knowingly because I'm sure I had met others, but you just don't know it. Because mm -hmm. how, how, how would you know, you know? And doesn't that tell you something right there? I mean, aren't you supposed to notice atheists, these bad, evil people around the world? Shouldn't they stand out like horrible sore thumbs? But on that show, we have a videotape of the day we met. So it's pretty cool. We have that Oprah show in 1984. Um, and you can see us looking at each other. And for me, it was the first time I had ever publicly spoken about atheism or any of that stuff. It was the first time. Today, it all just flows off my lips. But um, back then, I was struggling for the first time to put the words together, even in front of a, in front of a live TV audience, and not just that, but a hostile live TV audience. And I loved that. I thought that was amazing. And I, I watched how Anne and Annie Laurie responded to questions, and I thought, wow, okay, this is these are my people. <laughs> these are really good friends. This is really a blast. And so I haven't stopped since then. And I asked Annie Laurie, and she says she still has that letter, that first letter you sent her. Yeah, yeah, she does, yeah. That she, that she finally got around to reading. <laughs> and it's funny in a way that, that the person responsible for the two of you meeting is Oprah Winfrey. Yeah, we would have met anyway. Um, because Anne had invited me to speak at the convention, which was the next month. So we were going to meet uh, in October. turns out that we actually met in September in Chicago. Uh, but yeah, uh, Oprah's producer or, or Oprah's show was the, was responsible for our actual first meeting. Yeah, that's true. You should, uh, you should tell Oprah that have, have a reunion after 30 years. Yeah, that's true. And our daughter could come on and, uh, Sabrina, we have a daughter named Sabrina, who's 28 now, and she saw that, a recording of that show, and uh, that's something of a secular miracle right there, because those shows were not recorded. The AM Chicago doesn't exist anymore. They didn't keep records. They don't, nobody knows who owns them, because they don't exist. Mm -hmm. um, one of our members in the Chicago area, one of the FFRF members, um, taped it on a VHS machine the day that it was broadcast and then mailed us the VHS and we put it in the basement or something. And about four or five years ago, I found it down in the basement. And so I had it digitized and there it was. If you look at it online now, you'll see that it's kind of, you know, warbly, you know how the tapes were uh, mm -hmm. back then, but, uh, and it's not high quality, but at least it's there. So we have a window into the past because that guy uh, mailed us that VHS. Now, I know that you, both you and Annie Laurie, work so hard um, 
I mean, I've been to your office. I know how much you work there. How do you unwind when you're not working? Most days, or many days, we walk. I, I walk home from work. It's three miles. That's a great way to unwind. Or sometimes I walk in. We share the company vehicle, which we keep at home for security reasons. So usually I drive it in and Annie Laurie walks to work, and then she drives it home and I walk home. So that's a those 45 minutes are really a nice time to just – you know, moderate exercise. But also for me, it's uh, music. I, I play jazz piano in town. And I used to do a, about 110 gigs a year. Uh, but it's cut down to about 50 a year now, which for me is really amazing. Last Friday, I played with Marilyn Fisher at this restaurant, a uh, New Orleans restaurant called Liliana's. And it's a great way to unwind, just to play jazz and to, and to bounce off each other or playing in a combo uh, next Saturday, I'll be playing with Johnny Whittacombe. He's the bass bass player in, in Wisconsin. So that's a great way to rewind. But reading, both of us are really big readers. And reading, uh, we like to read uh, uh, fiction to unwind. And so female mystery authors and uh, historical fiction. And, and I read science as well. So reading is a big way to unwind. And then Annie Laurie likes to watch old movies, like especially old black and white movies. And so we go on, we go on, she'll go on TV and I'll watch them with her. She just likes those great old Hitchcocks and, you know, um, even before then. So there's good ways to unwind. And we're planning a trip. We're planning a vacation to Peru in a, in a couple of months. So uh, we went to Cornwall. So we like to vacation. And Annie Laurie, when we're on vacation, she does not want to think about work, which is pretty amazing. I at least want to check into the office once a day, but she says, no, we're on vacation. So uh, so <laughs> I, she, I think we have a pretty good talent for unwinding. Yeah, that's what she told me, too. She, um, she said uh, she's very good at turning off the work email when she's not at work. She didn't yeah. mention the old movies thing because she and I have that in common. I love watching old movies. I didn't know she did, too. So well, you should compare notes. And she's educating me about some of these old movies that I missed, you know, uh, and some of the classics and the way they used to make them. And I think with black and white movies, they had to try harder mm-hmm. to make it look good. And so the look of the black and white movies, uh, you know, with color, you didn't have to try as hard. You got all this color to, you know, but uh, you can see the art. There's a lot more art, I think, in, in a lot of the older movies because they had to be artistic. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't know that. See, it's I love talking to both of you because I get the complete picture. <laughs> so, um, and that's amazing, by the way, your trip to Peru. Have you been there before? I've never been there, and I'm invited to speak. I'm going to be opening this three-day conference, the first ever South American Freethinkers Conference, International Freethinkers Conference, in the city of Arequipa, mm-hmm. which is way south in Peru. And so since I'm invited to go there, uh, and then Cusco is not too far away, and then Machu Picchu is not too far away. So Annie Lloyd said, well, I want to see Machu Picchu. So it looks like we're going to go down for a week or 10 days before the conference, and then she'll fly home, and I'll go over to Arequipa for the conference. So uh, that's going to be a lot of fun. So you have so much to look forward to. It's amazing. I mean, who would have thought looking back when you were – 15 and starting, you know, starting to become a, a preacher at that point, where your life would be today. I, I knew that I was motivated and I knew that whatever I attacked, I would attack it head on. 
I never knew that it would be atheism or free thought or state church lawsuits. We were going back through the uh, 40 years. This is our 40th anniversary this year. Uh, April April of 78 was when we were incorporated nationally. So we have an eight-page supplement to our next newspaper going over the last 40 years and looking at all the lawsuits and all the trips and all of the media and all of the – Annie and Lori and I were both surprised how often our names showed up as plaintiffs on these lawsuits. We, we knew we did a lot, but it was pretty amazing. So if you get our newspaper, you'll get that eight-page supplement. It starts at the very beginning and goes through the entire 40 years of FFRF's history. And I got to be a big part of that. I, I still think I'm a newcomer because I joined in 1984. Um, and there's only one person alive today who was still a member back then that we know of. Uh, that's Dick Hewitson. But I guess now after what, 30, how many years is that? 34 years? I guess I'm, I guess I'm part of the history of the group now. That's amazing. And looking forward to another 40 years of FFRF. Well, I ha- I'm going to live to 108. <laughs> and I'm 68 now. And you know why I say that? Uh-huh. In my 20s, I wrote some children's songs uh, for Joy Berry, who uh, is a really popular children's author. And she had a book about death. And one of the songs, she asked me to write two songs for, about death. She said, write a serious song about death when somebody dies, you know, like in a minor key. But she said, can you write a funny song about death? And I thought, huh? She said, yeah, make it like kind of light, funny song about death that we can introduce children. So I wrote a song called No Hurry to Die. And one of the lines is, uh, don't want to end up on somebody's plate. Don't want to be what a cannibal ate. I want to live to 108. I'm in no hurry to die. I'm in no hurry to fall over dead. I'd rather fall over laughing instead. I have a whole lot of living ahead. I'm in no hurry to die. And you can hear that song online. But I was in my 20s when I wrote that. I'm going to live to 108 because it rhymed. You know, I needed a word. So I'm committed now. I have to live to 108 because of that song. <laughs> I hope you do. Well, who knows? It's been done, but uh, I don't. I don't. I don't know. What are my chances? At least it's something to aim for, right? Yeah. Yeah. Keep walking. That'll help. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Dan, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, well, this is a lot of fun. You're one of the genuine people, Chris. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast and would like to support it, please visit Patreon.com/slash/TheAtheistBook. For more information about the book and film versions of A Better Life visit theatheistbook.com.